0: Well, this morning, we continue in our series, Cheerful Giving. One of the fundamental practices of following Jesus is tithing, worshiping God with our money. The tithe in Scripture is defined as giving God 10% of all that we earn, and we see this as a universal principle throughout Scripture. Long before the prescription of the tithe in the law, we find Abraham, for example, giving God 10% through the priest Melchizedek. We find the specific command to give 10% in the law of God places like Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, and Deuteronomy 14. And while we don't find a specific command to tithe in the New Testament, we don't find Jesus or Paul or any of the other apostles telling us that it's gone away. Instead, the New Testament shows that the good news of Jesus leads us into a lifestyle of generosity, and it's assumed that the tithe is the foundation for that life. When we think about tithing, it does beg the question, does God need our money? I want to give this topic the respect it deserves, so I'll cut to the chase and dive right in. But as we talk about tithing, you might be thinking, Brian, you draw a salary from the church. Isn't this a conflict of interest that you're speaking to the tithe? Well, I'm very grateful for how my calling provides for my family, but as you might expect, I'm not in it for the money. And to be honest, there have been many times when I've daydreamed about leaving ministry and making lots of money as if that were the solution. I also want you to know that personally, Amanda and I, we tithe 10% to Oaks Parish. The Old Testament paints a picture of the priestly order tithing the Levites to Aaron in Numbers 18. I also want you to know that I've, I've been on your side of the fence, so to speak, And in a way, God taught me more about money when I was in the marketplace than when I've been in ministry. But don't just take it from me. This week on the podcast, Joel Paul, the CFO of The Bible Project, will be joining us. And Joel has seen it all when it comes to money and the church. So I encourage you to tune in. What I want to share with you this morning are things that come from Scripture about tithing and some personal reflections that I've had along the way. And there's three things in particular. First, tithing joins us to the heart of God. Second, tithing joins us to the grace of God. And third, tithing joins us to the mission of God. Tithing joins us into who God is, his heart, his grace, and his mission. So we begin with the reality that tithing joins us to the heart of God. The book of Malachi holds profound meaning for our understanding of the heart of God, even an understanding of ourselves, and an understanding of our cultural moment. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written somewhere between probably 458 to 433 B.C. And scholarship concludes that Malachi was likely a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. You might be familiar with those names, perhaps not, so let me put that into context. Israel's monarchy had its heyday around 1000 BC under the reign of King David. And with a few exceptions, every king within Israel, between David and Malachi, turned away from God to varying degrees. And incidentally, their mistrust of God often had to do with money or how they used money to try to obtain security. Ultimately, by 586 BC, the people of God are given over to the objects of trust and are taken as slaves into exile first by the Babylonians, who are then overtaken by the Persians. The city of Jerusalem, its temple, the wall, all of its infrastructure are all destroyed. Yet through prophets like Isaiah, God promises to bring his people home, to restore Jerusalem, to never cease in his unfailing love. And it's through the exiles that return to the promised land that this work of restoration begins. Ezra, for example, was specifically tasked with rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, the wall that protected the city. But it was Malachi that sought to restore the heart of God's people. As you might imagine, restoration was hard work. And under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, everyone got excited about restoring the glory of Israel. But as the years went by, reality set in, and glory didn't come overnight. Those who returned to Jerusalem were questioning God, in a real sense, deconstructing their faith. Malachi chapter 1 opens addressing the question of God's love, specifically Israel's questioning of God's love. And God responds to them by essentially saying, Of course I love you. I chose you. I have secured your existence all the way back to David. The question is, do you love me? And God points to various aspects giving credence to this question. People are giving God the leftovers instead of bringing the best bull or goat from the herd for sacrifice. People are bringing animals who are blind or cripple or maim. The priesthood has become corrupt. The priests are not helping the people understand Scripture. Their character doesn't reflect God's law. They're pandering to the rich. Within Israel, marital unfaithfulness abounds. Some Israelite men were marrying women committed to other gods. Some Israelites who were married were abandoning their marriage without valid reason. And because of a lack of respect or fear for God, injustice was rampant. Business owners were defrauding workers their wages. The widow and the orphan were being mistreated. The houseless and the refugee were being cast aside. So then we reach the pinnacle point of the book, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Israel was deconstructing their faith. And when the people asked, how shall we return? God said, start with tithing. Huh? (laughs) Not prayer? Not Bible study? But here we see the heart of God. God loves the church and invites us into that love. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor. You know, often here in the West, we think about our faith journey with Christ in very individual terms. You know, it's just about me and Jesus. But as we follow the story of Scripture, our faith is not just individual, it's corporate. And it's through tithing that we join the heart of God in giving ourselves up for the thing that He loves, which is the church. Well, tithing not only joins us to the heart of God, but tithing joins us to the grace of God. Look again at verse 10. There, God, through Malachi, tells Israel, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. I love how the NIV translate this. To paraphrase, it says something like, and see that I don't pour out so much blessing that you won't have room for it. It's here in verse 10 that we find two amazing realities of grace. The first is that God doesn't need our money. I mean, notice how idolatry works in our heart and in our culture. Idolatry is trusting in something other than God for salvation. Our career, other people, money. Universally, the false gods demand that we come and we make a sacrifice with the promise of salvation. But that salvation never arrives. This is how consumerism works. We begin to get that fever. I need this new thing. We saw it on Instagram. We spend hours researching and dreaming about how different life is going to be when we get that thing. And then we get the thing, and it's over. And then we're on the hunt for the next thing. Notice the radical juxtaposition in the character of God. God is self-sufficient. God is self-giving. He doesn't need our money. It's not that he needs something from us. He wants something for us. We see this clearly in Psalm 50. God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Do you hear that? Do you see that picture in Psalm 50? We're not bringing this sacrifice, these offerings, because God needs anything from us. He wants something for us. Call on me in the day of trouble so that we can experience his salvation. And so that leads to kind of the second dimension that we see about God's grace here. We experience God's grace in the process. That word process is really important as we think about tithing. It's through a surrendered, trusting faith that we give God the opportunity to become real to us. And if you feel like God is absent in your life, Malachi's recommendation is to start tithing because God wants to show up. If you've ever trained for something, maybe you're preparing for a play, a marathon, a music recital, a sports season, You know, there is a cost to be paid in order to obtain joy. As the old saying goes, no pain, no gain. And on the surface, it's no fun to spend hours with an instrument or reading lines over and over again or hitting the gym by yourself early in the morning. But then something mysterious happens that can only happen through the process. You begin to enjoy the discipline of it all. You begin to notice a competency that builds, your capacity expands, and that growth prepares you for the pivotal moment, whether that be the performance, the race, or the exam. When God tells Israel, test me, he's inviting us into this process. Yes, you will pay a price. And sometimes I thought to myself, how can my neighbors buy that new car or take that vacation. And then it dawned on me, I gave up those kinds of things when we tithed. No doubt there is a price to be paid. But watch what happens when you faithfully commit 10% to the Lord. You begin to notice the changes that happen in your heart. You begin to open the door for God to show up, to really show up in your life. Psalm 78, another psalm, shows us how we experience God's grace in this process. Here again, God is speaking to Israel for their failure to trust Him in faith. Psalm 78, verse 10 and 11, they did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot what He had done and the miracles that He had shown them. They forgot. They forgot what He had done. They had forgotten about the miraculous ways that he'd worked in their life. We often think about obedience as something we have to do for God in order to earn his favor in our life. But gospel-centered obedience is resting and trusting in what he has done. It's the finished work of Christ in the cross and the resurrection. And so faith is simply trusting that God will show up. And when we tithe, we're essentially saying, God, we're putting our money on you. And just like playing an instrument or rehearsing lines, the competency that builds over time through tithing is an expanded capacity for trusting faith. And that expanded trusting faith pays dividends in every area of your life. You begin to realize that if you can trust God with your money, you can trust him for everything else, for what's unfolding in your career, the future of your children, the brokenness that you've experienced in this, in your story, the haunting sin in your life. You know, in the early days of our marriage, our church was walking through a sermon series much like this one. It was the first time I'd ever heard biblical teaching on tithing and generosity. And it was during that series that we received a support request from a missionary. And I took a look at our bank account. Amanda and I had $75 to our name and I remember sitting at my desk in our guest bedroom and I said to God okay you said to test you and you would pour out so much blessing that we wouldn't have room for it my parents were coming in town that weekend I think it was probably the first time that we'd ever hosted them and so I said to God I'm going to empty our bank account I'm going to write a check for $75 and if you don't show up we're not going to have groceries I write the check I lick the stamp, I throw it in the mailbox. My parents arrive on Friday evening and I help them unload the suitcases from our back seat. And then they say to me, can you help us with one more thing? And we go outside, they open their trunk and it's filled with groceries. And we bring them into our apartment and it was literally so many bags of groceries that we didn't have room for it in our kitchen and i remember putting grocery bags on our washer and dryer units it started to build a muscle a muscle of trusting faith is at that time that our church was conducting a capital campaign along with this series on generosity and i get really excited about things, uh, sometimes overly excited. Amanda kind of has to pull me back and and rein me in. But Amanda and I decided together to commit a significant amount of money to the campaign each and every month. Maybe it was foolishness. But it was at that time that we just started thinking about going to seminary. And we knew that that was going to cost some money. But I remember praying, God, we're going to give so significantly that if you don't come through, if you don't show up We're going to be doomed. About a year and a half later, we're in our final months working in Atlanta. We decide that we're going to seminary. We make the commitment. We have no money saved up. We find out we're pregnant with Ellie. I'm struggling to find a job. I'm trying to figure that out. I remember staying up at night, walking the floors of our apartment, talking to God about how in the world it was all going to work out. And then one evening, my phone rings, and it's my mom who goes on to tell me that someone who wanted to remain anonymous approached my parents and wanted to pay for the entirety of my seminary tuition. I think so many times we get faith wrong. God just wants to show up in our lives, and tithing joins us to the grace of God. Third, and finally, tithing joins us to the mission of God. And this really gets at the power of constraints. You know, we often believe that the pathway to flourishing is the removal of constraining influences. Let's get rid of rules, boundaries, let's move toward absolute freedom. But in a review of 145 empirical studies, scholars at Harvard Business Review found just the opposite. They found that individuals, teams, and organizations alike benefit from a healthy dose of constraint. For example, they referenced GE's electrocardiograph, otherwise known as an ECG. This device revolutionized cardiovascular care in rural areas. Engineers began, coincidentally, with a set of constraints. The device had to include the latest technology, cost no more than a dollar per scan. It needed to be battery-operated and small enough to fit in a backpack. The team was given a $500,000 research budget, pretty limited for a product like this, and a timeline of only 18 months. The engineers were not successful despite these constraints, but because of them. They conclude, when there are no constraints on the creative process, complacency sets in, and people follow what psychologists call the path of least resistance. They go for the most intuitive idea that comes to mind rather than investing in the development of better ideas. Constraints, in contrast, provide focus and a creative challenge that motivates people to search for and connect information from different sources to generate novel ideas for new products, services, or business processes. It goes to the point that constraint is the mother of innovation. And could it be that part of God's design in giving 10% is that it causes us to be more intentional about the other 90%? Jesus gets at this very point in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Notice the power of constraints there. Most of the time we want life to follow our emotions. We want to feel good about something before we make a commitment. Jesus tells us to do just the opposite, especially with money. Commit your treasure to God and then watch what it does to your heart. Isn't this the nature of discipleship, of trusting faith? You know, the disciples of Jesus had no idea what they were getting into, but the first step was simply, come, follow me. When they made that initial commitment, it shaped the entirety of their life. You know, working on this series, it led me to a comprehensive review of my own financial life. I started tracking our budget more closely with an app that even goes back and organizes historical data. I discovered that there are things that we shouldn't be paying for, parts of our budget that need to move up, parts that need to move down, and end up finding a good deal of even buried treasure. Think about what happens when we tithe. With thanksgiving, we give God our first 10%, trusting his provision for the remaining 90%. And it's through this process that he opens our eyes. Tithing cultivates intentionality. We're drawn into a discovery of where our money is really going. And sometimes that's affirming. Sometimes that's shocking. Tithing rescues us from covetousness. Tithing asks the question, do you really need that new thing? We realize that salvation is found only in God, not in the Apple VR headset, for example. Tithing also inspires a lifestyle of generosity. Tithing brings about financial sobriety. This is something we so desperately need in our culture. And when our head is clear about where our money is going, and our heart is free from pining after things that we don't need, we find as a result that we've arrived at the kingdom of heaven. And then we begin to ask really fun and crazy questions. What else can I give to? What else can I give away? Tithing becomes the training wheels for a lifestyle of generosity. Our vision as a church is really aiming to be an obedient response to the issues that Israel was dealing with in Malachi chapter 3. As a church, our vision, our long-range vision, is that we want to grow as a community pursuing God's justice and healing for the nations. And a key part of that vision has to do with money. Our goal by 2025 is to give away 25% of our annual budget to gospel-centered ministry to the least, the last, and the lost. This year, we're in year three of that plan. We're giving away 15% of our budget. That's approximately $40,000 that's going out the door to ministry in our city, our region, and the world. And certainly, this commitment constrains us It has us saying no to certain self-serving interests as a church. And yet, it's yielding beautiful fruit. In our city, as we come alongside our houseless neighbors with family promise. In our region, as we support church planting all over the Pacific Northwest. In global places like Malawi, where we're supporting the training of a new generation of indigenous pastors and helping to provide healing to women traumatized by abuse. Constraint requires intentionality, but it yields the beauty of the gospel. And us as a church accomplishing this vision can only come about through our collective faithfulness in tithing. I want to close with the third application question in your worship guide. Take a moment this week to check in on your tithe. What action do you need to take? I did that this week. I want you to know that I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And in checking in on my tithe, I discovered that we're just under 10%. We need to bump it up. But I ask you this question, not because God needs anything from you, but because he wants something for you. You know, it's sometimes asked, what if I can't give 10%? I would suggest that it isn't a matter of math. It's a matter of trust. Whatever Whatever you think you don't have, whatever mistakes that you've possibly made with debt or challenges that you're facing with debt, do you trust that God loves you enough to abundantly provide? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Let me close with a prayer of financial trust And we've been using throughout this series. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all that we have. It is truly a gift we never deserved. And though we have some goals and dreams, we're totally content even in times of suffering because our identity is secure in your Son. In every situation, we lean on you and trust in you for provision. Although our own planning and hard work plays a role, our heart and life are full of generosity, animated by love for those in need even when it costs me dearly. In your name we pray, amen.